Thanks for tuning in. I'm Steve Ray, author of How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in this podcast, I'm going to share with you some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. I've heard it said that experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. My goal with the book and this podcast is to share my experience and the lessons learned from it with you so you can apply those lessons and be successful in America. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome back. This week we're starting another two-part series entitled Working With or In Spite of Distributors. And this is part one of two. I trust you were intrigued by the title. The irony was that it was originally suggested to me and ultimately used for a seminar title at an industry conference by a notable top distributor executive. It's not intended as a criticism of distributors. Rather, it's an acknowledgement of a disconnect between a brand owner's expectations and a distributor's performance. The key is communication. So the title, Working With or In Spite of Distributors, is a creative way of highlighting the need for proper communication between the two parties. Let's start off this chapter with a fundamental truth that you need to recognize and accept. Distributors are, at the fundamental level, logistics companies that warehouse and distribute wines and spirits to on- and off-premise accounts. That's how they got their name, Distributor. However, like everything else in life, it's a bit more complicated than that. Yes, distributors can help build brands, and yes, they provide significant added value to the basics of just storing and moving cases. But think about it. Most successful businesses focus on the 80-20 rule. In the case of wine and spirits distributors, that means the 20% of the suppliers that generate 80% of the revenue, and probably more focus on the profits than even the revenue. It's an economic fact of life. And it's true of the wine and spirits industry, too. The burden falls on the supplier or the importer to find creative ways of getting a disproportionate amount of time and attention from their distributors. A key point here, you don't want to just get more time from distributors. You want to get a disproportionate amount of time and attention from them. And to do that, you need to provide them with added value where they see value. So it's no easy task when the distributor's goal is to focus that time and attention on the brands generating the revenue right now, not necessarily those that might be important in the future. And that becomes a challenge for you as the brand owner. How do I present my brand in a way that syncs what our goals are and what the distributor's goals are? So if you accept the truth of that statement, let's take an up-close and personal look at what is happening in the world of wine and spirits distribution in the U.S. now and the trends that are driving change. But before we start, let's make sure that we're clear on what the definitions are. A distributor, also known as a wholesaler in America, distributor and wholesaler are synonymous here. They are licensed to buy wine from an importer or domestic supplier and sell it to an on- and off-premise retailer from Tier 1 to Tier 3. A license is issued by the individual state. It's an important distinction. The importer, on the other hand, is licensed to import a wine or spirit brand from a supplier outside the U.S. into America. In that case, the license is issued by the federal government, it's called a basic permit, and is therefore national. 
An importer may or may not have distributor licenses or operations in individual states. But even if they do, they operate that as separate companies. So just because you have an importer does not necessarily mean that there's a tacit agreement that when they say yes to you as an importer, that means automatically that you're getting them as a distributor in that state. That's something that you have to negotiate. We're going to take a look at how the liquor wine wholesaler tier has changed in the last 30 years, from 1990 to 2020. In 1990, there were five to eight major wholesalers in all markets. Now, there's generally two major wholesalers in most states. In, in that case, we're talking about non-franchise states. In 1990, there were many wholesalers that were not statewide. Now, you'll find about two to four, and they're, they're growing. Some of the smaller uh, locally owned and specialty wholesalers in major cities and many small players in all markets. So there's a lot more choice, but the trade-off is they don't reach as many accounts, nearly as many accounts as the major wholesalers. Back then, there was local active ownership, usually a family. Now, there's no local ownership in major wholesalers, and they are and function as major corporations. Back in 1990, there were 3,000 WSWA members. Now, there's less than 300. And here's the effect that those changes have had on market entry. 30 years ago, wholesalers fight for most brands, including small vendors. In fact, I remember sitting in the conference room at a company called Hudeline, which is what Diageo turned into, while one of the local Connecticut wholesalers was making his pitch to the brand to please let them carry it. And that's in a franchise state. It was Connecticut. Uh, so I think that's kind of interesting. So in the old days where wholesalers fought for most brands, nowadays suppliers struggle just to get presentation opportunities. In the old days, wholesalers made promises regarding sales volume and distribution. And nowadays, their time is dedicated to big vendors, making it harder for smaller brands. But not impossible. And lastly, suppliers used to monitor accomplishments of wholesalers with the threat of moving to another wholesaler looming over them. And that's no longer the case. The supplier, the importer, must show how they will help sell and promote their brands in the market. 30 years, 1990 to 2020, and it's the equivalent of the difference between marketing in a country like Sweden and marketing in a country like Germany. I have a really good chart that shows the consolidation of distribution as that's happening on a daily basis. You can view an updated version of the chart on the getusmarketready.com website under free tools. And there I list the top 10 wholesalers, a very detailed list of the markets, meaning the states in which they operate. We take a look at sales revenue in dollars, and also market share. And what you'll see is that uh, maybe 20 years ago, well, 10 years ago, the top 10 wholesalers represented about 50% of the U.S. market. And as of 2020, it's more like 75%. So there are fewer and fewer major distributors who are being more and more choosy about what brands they want to focus on. And new brands are always challenged because they are questionable. How do I know it's going to sell? And the whole point of this book is to prove that point in their minds so that they will take it on and help your vision of reality become reality. Go to getusmarketready.com and click on free tools. You'll have to put your email address in there and you can download a chart showing the current situation of distributor size, strength, and market concentration. 
W-I-I-F-M. That stands for What's In It For Me. What's in it for me, or WIFM, is a critical question I use to make sure that our planning and communications is on the right track. It's a great mnemonic to use in evaluating positioning statements and communication objectives. At the end of the day, good marketing communications means that you are speaking to a specific audience in a language and vocabulary that they understand. WIFM makes a great test by keeping everyone in the process focused on who is the target audience for a given message and does the message address their specific needs. And by different audiences, I mean the message to an importer may be very different from the message to a distributor and different from the message to an on- or an off-premise retailer and then also a consumer. As an example, a lot of suppliers who want to run ads in trade magazines use their consumer creative. Wrong! The readers of trade magazines don't really care about the brand the way you do. They want to know what your brand can do for them. So, answer the real question your target recipients have on the tip of their tongue. How is this product going to help me grow my business, generate more customers, get customers shopping more frequently, make more money, and margin? Here's an even simpler way to think about it. The trade wants margin and profits, while the consumer wants romance and glamour. Make sure you're sending the right message to the right audience. Here's a quickie checklist of what many importers and distributors have told us they want in a new brand. Number one, most important, that there be the right chemistry between the two companies. Number two, it fills an identified void in their portfolio. And by that, they're looking at brands with existing U.S. volume that they can grow, new brands they feel their expertise can develop and grow, and brands that have unique positioning, for example, the 19 Crimes example I, I mentioned earlier about augmented reality. And lastly, one that enhances their image, value, and most importantly, profitability. Bottom line, it's the supplier's responsibility to understand the target customer and their mission, performance, and successes. Then be able to translate that understanding in a way to communicate that a new brand is in sync with the importer's mission. Let me give you a case history example of one success we've had recently with a wine producer from New Zealand. The company is called Invivo. The brand that they came up with is Invivo X, SJP. And while that may seem like an odd choice for a name, it's done in along with Sarah Jessica Parker, that's SJP, and that's the way she signs her emails or her social media notes, X, SJP. And so when they put the brand together, they wanted to make sure that they got not only the celebrity's name in it, but that the leading thing was the brand name. They were very successful in doing that, and we were ultimately able to take the brand to Taub Family Selections. And the reason they were specifically interested in it is because they had tremendous success in the past working with Skinny Girl, with Bethany Frankel, and also Sting with his Italian wine. Well, that's it for today. I don't want to take up any more of your time. This has been Working With or In Spite of Distributors, Part 1. We'll see you next week for Part 2. As always, thanks for listening to How to Get U.S. Market Ready, presented by the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi, this is Steve Ray. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs>